A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, the Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. Welcome to the History of the Saints podcast. My name is Glenn Rawson, series host. What you are about to listen to is an episode about the documentary history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is one of more than 250 presentations from 1805 and the birth of Joseph Smith the Prophet through 1877 and the death of Brigham Young. This series interviews some of the finest scholars of our time and presents the latest in historical research and facts as it relates to early Latter-day Saint history. And it comes from the long-running, highly acclaimed television documentary series, History of the Saints. If you have a desire to learn the history in depth and detail, then this podcast is for you. Thank you. For joining us. Coming up on History of the Saints, 116 pages of manuscript lost. The Book of Lehi. What happened and what did it mean? Martin Harris took characters that had been copied down for him by Joseph Smith and went east to visit with learned men about the veracity of those characters. That was February and March of 1828. While he was gone, back in Harmony, it was Emma who scribed for Joseph as he continued the translation process. She and Joseph worked uh, from uh, hour after hour, day after day. Emma serves as as his scribe as he's doing uh, translation work uh, that early uh, spring of 1828. Uh, then Martin Harris comes in April of 1828 back from having gone to visit Samuel Mitchell, Charles Anthon. He's ready to serve as the scribe and takes Emma's place, which allows Emma to then get a lot more things done. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscript unless he was inspired. For when acting as his scribe, Joseph would dictate to me hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this, and for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. Emma Smith. Joseph said it was sometime around April 12, 1828, when Martin commenced writing for me while I translated from the plates. Joseph used the Urim Thummim and the Seer Stone in the translation process. Why did he use these instruments and what did they mean? It's interesting to look in other places where we see prophets 
using instruments. And you see, you see some common denominators here. Lehi, for example, with the Leahona, Moses and Aaron with their rod. Take that little group right there in Joseph Smith. Common denominator is that Moses and Aaron are starting something up after 300 years of apostasy. And God gives them an instrument to help it out. Lehi coming out of a very apostate Jerusalem on the verge of being destroyed. It's so wicked. And heading out into the middle of nowhere where the support system is going to be, as far as mortals go, uh, pretty limited. And he has an instrument. And I think that's what you see with these instruments that Joseph Smith has. He's given them to help focus his mind. Revelation doesn't come easy even for a prophet. And Joseph needed that little something to hold on to in order to get that revelation to come. And then he got the hang of it and, and was able to lay those things aside. Compare the sacrament with a seer stone. And they may seem worlds apart, but honestly, I think there's some similarities. Two very commonplace objects water that you can get out of a tap, bread that you can buy at the store, and a rock that you can pick up off the ground. Very commonplace. But in the right context, with the right authority, the bread and the water are a very important means, of course, for obtaining the Spirit of God and obtaining revelation. Through, through obtaining the Spirit uh, through which we receive revelation. And in the right context, a simple rock uh, can be a very important aid for receiving revelation as well. The physical scriptures that we have, some of the symbolism that we use, these are physical things to help get our minds in a position and in a state where we can receive revelation. I think that's all that the Urim and Thummim and the Seer Stone were all about. Physical objects that were prepared to accomplish a certain thing, to help Joseph accomplish a certain thing that eventually he, he did not need uh, anymore. Martin continued to write for Joseph. And as marvelous as it was, Martin couldn't help but doubt. The hostility of his wife, the skepticism of his neighbors, all contributed to make Martin wonder if he was being duped. Therefore, he devised ways to put Joseph to the test. They take a break and they go down to the Susquehanna River and they skip rocks across the river. And Martin Harris finds a rock that looks similar to the seer stone Joseph Smith was using. And he replaces Joseph Smith's seer stone in the hat. He said that the prophet remained silent, unusually and intently gazing in darkness, no traces of the usual sentences appearing. Much surprised, Joseph exclaimed, Martin, what is the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. Martin's countenance betrayed him, and the prophet asked Martin why he had done so. Martin said to stop the mouths of fools, who had told him that the prophet had learned those sentences and was merely repeating them. Deseret Evening News, September 5th, 1870. At one point, Martin even asked Joseph if he could see the plates. He now requested Joseph to permit him to look upon the plates, for he desired a further witness of their actual existence, and that he might be better able to give a reason for the hope that was within him of seeing great things come to pass in the last days. Lucy Mack Smith By the middle of June, 
1828, Joseph and Martin had completed what Joseph referred to as 116 pages of manuscript on fool's cap paper. Now, what's that? Well, that was common writing paper of the day, about 13 and a half inches by 16 and a half inches in dimension, with a watermark of a fool's cap on it. After they were having translated 116 pages, it was Martin Harris's desire, with the encouragement of his wife, Lucy, to bring the manuscript home so that she could see it. So he asked Joseph once, and Joseph asked the Lord, and the Lord said no. And he asked again, and the Lord said no, and he asked him a third time, and the Lord said yeah, with conditions. And uh, those uh, conditions were that he show them only two close members of his own personal family, his wife, his father, Nathan Harris, and his mother, Rhoda Lapham Harris, and his brother, Preserved Harris. The Harris family assures me that it was preserved rather than preserved. This was agreed, a covenant uh, was signed and actually in writing. And Martin left and went up to Palmyra. I don't think the Lord ever says that he approves of Martin Harris taking the pages. Joseph Smith's history, his earliest autobiography, says that Joseph asks and asks again and asks the third time, and the Lord says, okay, let him go with them. And that could be read to mean the Lord, you know, was being a little stubborn and hard-headed, and when they finally prevail upon him, he sees things clearly and says, yeah, sorry for being so difficult, and yeah, sure, let him go with them. What I think happens is something much more like what my parents uh, did, which... I would persist, and they'd say, that's not very wise. If you do that, not, it's not going to be good. And I'd say, yeah, everything will be okay. Everybody else is doing it. And, well, if you do that, it's not going to be good. And I'd keep persisting, and my dad would say, well, okay, do whatever you're going to do. And then it would turn out as he predicted. Joseph was very partial to Mr. Harris on account of the friendship which he had manifested in an hour when there seemed to be no earthly friend to succor or to sympathize. Under these circumstances, Joseph felt a great desire to gratify the man's feelings as far as it was justifiable to do so. Lucy Max Smith. So he covenants to show that to only six individuals. Uh, there's a stagecoach that goes through town uh, twice a week uh, that he takes north. Uh, he's supposed to write a letter back uh, to tell Joseph you know, what's going on and to give some contact. Uh, but as soon as he leaves uh, to take that record, Emma uh, goes into labor and she delivers her child. Some accounts say that that child was, was stillborn. Uh, what that means is not that the child was born uh, not living, but that the child didn't cry when it was born, uh, because other accounts suggest that it only lived for a few hours. And it was a tragedy. It appears that there was an epidemic going through the community. Emma's sister had lost a child a few months before that. Some of her neighbors lost children weeks before or weeks after that. And there 
there are some older people that have died as well in the area. We don't know what kind of epidemic it was, but it appears to have affected Emma as well because she was very ill after delivering this child, and Joseph took constant care of her. And he did that for a few weeks, not hearing anything from Martin Harris, to the point that he began to worry. And as Emma begins to improve a little bit from her illness, she's also worried. I remember that she has spent a lot of time helping produce that initial manuscript, so she's emotionally invested in that manuscript as well. It's partly her efforts, and so she naturally worries about it as well and wants Joseph to go find out what's happened to the manuscript. As Joseph traveled north, worry consumed him. When the stage finally dropped him off, it was 10 o'clock at night and 20 miles from his parents' home in Manchester. A fellow passenger noticed Joseph's condition and expressed due concern. Joseph told the gentleman that he had left his wife in so low a state of health that he had reason to fear he would not find her alive when he returned. Also, he had buried his first and only child, but a few days previous to leaving home, Lucy Mack Smith. Remarkably, notwithstanding that stranger's own travel plans, he insisted on getting off the stage with Joseph and walking with him that 20 miles to Manchester. When they arrived at our house, it was nearly daylight. Four miles of distance, the stranger was under the necessity of leading Joseph by his arm, for nature was too much exhausted to support him any longer, and he would fall asleep as he stood upon his feet as often as once in a few minutes. When they came in, the stranger said, I have brought your son through the forest because he insisted on coming. But he is sick and wants rest and refreshment. No one ever knew that stranger's name. Now, as soon as Joseph was there, he immediately sent for Martin Harris. Martin doesn't come until later in the day, and when he does, he sits on the fence for a while and pulls his hat down over his eyes and looks completely forlorn. And Joseph begins at some point to fear the worst. At last he entered the house. After we sat down and were ready to commence eating, Martin too, with the rest, he took up his knife and fork as if to use them, but dropped them from his hands. Hiram said, Martin, why do you not eat? Are you sick? Martin pressed his hands upon his temples and cried out in a tone of anguish, Oh, I have lost my soul. I have lost my soul. Joseph, who had smothered his fears till now, sprang from the table, exclaiming, Oh, Martin, have you lost that manuscript? Have you broken your oath and brought down condemnation upon my head as well as your own? Yes, replied Martin, it is gone and I know not where. And Joseph Smith says, you go home and find it. (laughs) Find that manuscript. I can't. I've searched the house. It's gone. and I don't know where it is. And so Joseph Smith becomes completely forlorn at this point. What could I say to comfort him when he saw the family all in the same state of mind that he was? Nothing could be more affecting than the appearance which we presented. Sobs and groans and the most bitter lamentations filled the house. Joseph particularly was more distressed than the rest, for he knew definitely and by sorrowful experience the consequence of what would seem to others to 
be a very trifling neglect of duty. Lucy Mack Smith. He's worried about whether he's totally lost his opportunity. Uh, Moroni's been very, very strict with him about what he can do with the, book, with the plates and with the pages and who he can tell and what he can show. And he feels like now he's, he's just completely breached his, his contract with God. A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, The Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, The Kingdom Endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. With heavy heart, Joseph returned to Harmony to tell Emma. The manuscript was gone. It has never been returned. What happened with Martin and that manuscript? And Martin Harris had allowed Lucy to put them in a cabinet, uh, and she had the key. And they went on a visit to relatives, and Lucy stayed over, and Martin came back. And a very important person, and we don't know who it was, came to see them, and Martin felt that he could sidestep his covenant not to show it to anyone. And so he displayed it on that occasion. He chose to display it on a number of occasions to any astute person who came by making inquiry. But because he couldn't get into the cabinet that Lucy had left locked, he pried the cabinet and got to the 116 pages back. Lucy came back and was distraught for his having pried the lock, and they had a real falling out, and there are various stories associated with that, especially that she committed them to the flames. But we also have section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which indicates that they are in the hands of enemies, those who are adverse to the, the prophet and the, and the work. Lucy Harris may have taken the manuscript. She may have burned it. Um, others may have stolen it. There's a few accounts of people have who say they possess and they've, they've stolen the manuscript. But ultimately, that manuscript was gone. Joseph began translating from plates inscribed by the prophet Mormon. The first part of that record was an abridgment of the book of Lehi. Hence, what Martin lost was the book of Lehi. Please consider that notwithstanding what Martin had done, it was Joseph who cried out in the anguish of his soul, I have sinned. He takes full responsibility for ever letting that out of his hand in the first place. Yes, Martin Harris lost them, but it was Joseph's responsibility. He knew how he was entrusted. Oh, and then for the next six hours... Lucy Max Smith says Joseph walked back and forth on that kitchen floor in that little Palmyra home, weeping and wailing like a child in total anguish of soul. And why? 
because he broke that trust. And he knows now who he has to meet. And so, in that fall, he's, he's just in great anguish. And indeed, when he gets back home to Harmony and seeks revelation on the subject, the Lord lands on him. In the first ten verses of what's now section three of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord begins by rebuking Joseph Smith flatly. Although a man may have many revelations and mighty works, yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets at not the counsels of God and hearkens not to the Lord, then he will, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. You should have known better. It just goes on and on. It's very straightforward. And it's a first-class rebuke. You can feel a little bit how Joseph must have felt to be accountable to the Lord and the Lord's servant, Moroni, for what he does with the Book of Mormon. It's Joseph Smith's chastisement. And it's a, it's a, it's a rebuke of the Lord's chosen servant, but it's a great lesson. It's a great lesson in the same principle of repentance. And Joseph Smith suffers for it. After this rebuke, the Lord extended hope to Joseph. But remember, he said, God is merciful. Therefore, repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandments which I gave you. And thou art still chosen and art again called to the work. And that is the good news that Joseph Smith had been hoping for, maybe more than he thought he could reasonably hope for. But he was still called to the work. He does repent. Joseph loses the opportunity to translate uh, throughout that summer. He works on his farm toward the end of the summer. He digs a well. It seems that he's doing that to make uh, Emma's work a little easier for her, uh, perhaps because they've lost uh, Martin Harris as a scribe. And they're anticipating getting the record back in September of 1828 and Emma knows that she's going to have to try to maintain her own house and work as a scribe as well and Joseph's trying to help find ways to ease her burdens as they do that. According to Mother Lucy's history, the gift of translation was restored to Joseph September 22nd. 1828. Joseph gets uh, gets the plates back, gets the uh, Urim and Thummim back, and gets the permission essentially to begin to retranslate again after losing the 116 pages. The problem is what he doesn't get back immediately is a full-time scribe. And so that fall and winter, he's got everything but, but somebody actually to write for him. Emma, as time permits, apparently writes a little bit for him. Emma's not able to help him much. They have a lot of demands financially, struggling. So there's not a lot of translation that they're able to accomplish. And it continues like that throughout the winter. Joseph actually prays for a scribe and he receives the promise through the Spirit that he is going to receive a scribe that will help him. That promise of a scribe will find fulfillment just at sunset on April the 5th, 1829. A young man came down to meet Joseph all the way from Palmyra. His name, Oliver Cowdery. When we return, our story is the early years of the life of Oliver Cowdery. I'm Glenn Rawson, and we'll see you then. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like more information on what you have listened to, please go to historyofthesaints.org. The History of the Saints team that produced this podcast has also produced numerous books and full-length documentaries on early Latter-day Saint church history and the key figures that made that history. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast of History of the Saints has been produced by Dennis Lyman and Glenn Rawson. History of the Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization.